Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Friday Reporter Podcast. It's a podcast where me, Lisa, the host, interviews journalists and the journalism adjacent about their work. The Friday Reporter Podcast is in partnership with PR Daily. And if you don't know about PR Daily, it is a tremendous uh, resource for communicators like myself and you and and the folks you work with. Uh, PR Daily actually just launched what's called the PR Daily Leadership Network. It's a peer-to-peer brainstorming and networking opportunity for mid-level communicators, uh, access to uh, measurement of SEO, uh, business fluency, presentation training, lots of other opportunities there at prdaily.com. If you're interested in the PR Daily Leadership Network, be sure to mention that you heard about it on the Friday Reporter Podcast to receive $500 off of your membership. Well, hello, and thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Today's guest is perhaps one of my most creative and my most fun connections. Uh, My friend and colleague, Justin Jaffe, is Reagan Communications Editor-in-Chief, and my uh, partner in crime, really, in some of the events and the opportunities that I get to participate in for PR Daily in the project that I work on uh, in conjunction with the podcast. So, Justin, thank you for being with me today. It's an absolute pleasure, Lisa. How are you? I'm I'm super good. I mean, I'm in an air-conditioned room, and it's not 900 degrees like it was a few days before, so what could go wrong? <laughs> and indeed. <laughs> so, Justin, I want to talk a little bit about your background is, is super flush with lots of freelance work and lots of um, media work and media-adjacent work, and I just kind of want to get into it. I want to talk a little bit about how you got started in your career, and, and tell me a little bit about your background. Of course. Um, I think it's important to frame things around my sort of professional education because I graduated with my undergrad, uh, my BFA in writing literature and publishing from Emerson in Boston Mm -hmm. in 2009. And that's a significant year because it's, you know, we talk about the world changing in the context of COVID, but really in 2008, that great recession among the most impacted industries was the media industry, right? So I was going to this college, frankly, where a lot of children were budding scions and young professionals and, you know, they had connections in the industry, many, many for whom a four-year degree was a formality, right? Yeah. Um, and my networking and, and my my world building, my my professional world building was, was deeply shaped and then augmented by the fact that like when the economy crashed, I think a lot of a lot of parts, both of the publishing industry, the media industry, and also when I say media outside the context of news media too, right? Um, Film and television, Mm -hmm. uh, which I I was deeply in in both of those communities as well. So it became a lot harder to get a job. You know, I moved to New York in 2009, the sort of kid with the bindle, like expecting a writing job to happen. But the (laughs) only kids getting writing jobs in 2009 had some, you know, intimate family connection or leg up, like the nepotism kind of reigned. And that's that's no knock on where things were, but I think a lot of, media businesses were really consolidating uh-huh. um, and, and thinking about their investments with uh, a much tighter purse. Um, you have to remember too, streaming was becoming ubiquitous. This was like pre Spotify boon, like vinyl just had a resurgence in like 2004, right. 2005. But, uh-huh. but you know, most of these, most of these businesses were really uh, trying to figure out how their revenue streams were changing. Cause you had the recession and then you had like in music, particularly uh, most things transitioning to like a touring model, like like media wasn't worth as much anymore. So I got, kind of got caught up in all that. Interesting. Um, I worked for Apple for several years as like a workshop trainer on Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. I worked for the um, the composer Philip Glass. He did like Koyana Scotsy and a lot of the PBS stuff, uh, Truman Show. That was a fascinating job. 
Um, he had a guy transposing all of his handwritten scores into digital. And I did like label ops, you know, everything from selling merch at shows to dealing with vendors. So I, I did some odd music industry jobs, but it was really when him and Philip Glass and Ira Glass from This American Life met at an Apple Store event. And I saw how happy the people were, even though it was retail. Uh-huh. And I saw the culture there. So I got into Apple for like five or six years. Um, and I did really good work there. Still one of the best paying jobs and best cultures I'd ever had. I was selling iPhone 4s when Steve Jobs died. You know, oh, wow. <laughs> I told punk kids in Fifth Avenue like who were mouthing off or rude to our employees. I would take them down to the lower level and show them Steve Jobs. You know, I, I had a lot of fun. I bet. And I had some great people, great creatives too. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I decided to get into journalism because I love talking to people. Um, I was already kind of like a budding music and culture hipster just by being at this nexus of of involvement. And, you know, sure. I was sitting on this great degree and lived experience that I'd never done anything with. So I went to journalism school. I went to CUNY J school. Um, and, uh, this must be 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a wonderful program. I kind of did things in reverse. Most people go to the nice grad school, uh, and go to kind of the state college. <laughs> I did things the other way around. I went to the fancy undergrad. There's but, no um, wrong way to do it. <laughs> That's for sure. It's true. Yeah. And, and I love New York and I love CUNY's program. Uh-huh. Not no knock on like NYU or Columbia, both great schools, but I do think CUNY was democratizing journalism. Uh, there were folks from a wide variety of economic backgrounds, a wide variety of cultures and identities. Right. Um, and it was affordable as well. So it was really sort of like a, a tableau of the city and the variety and the diversity of New York. That's amazing. Um, through the lens of reporting. Yeah, and they taught us everything, right? They taught us manual photography. They taught us data journalism. Uh, they taught us coding. Uh, you know, they taught us long form. Um, I really got into long form there. I really got into arts reporting. Those were kind of my two niches. Um, I got an internship between my second and third semester at the uh, New York Observer before it rebranded to the Observer. It was a surreal lesson as a reporter, I'd say, like learning how to speak to the debatedly ethical uh, leadership, at least from my perception. This is a nonpartisan podcast. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, we try to be anyway. (laughs) I mean, you talk to you talk to artists, you talk to musicians, you talk to like punks from D.C. and they have a lot of questions about your signing your checks, you know, as they should, as any skeptic should. Um, And you you really learn through music reporting for maybe a, a business whose ownership you don't necessarily agree with, you learn how to let your subjects speak for you and how you how you can constructively structure a dialogue in a way that gets to the right conversations without throwing yourself on the bus, you know, sure. staying staying neutral, staying Switzerland, that sort right. of in the beltway diplomacy. So that was kind of my first big journalism gig. I can keep going or what whatever I'll, I'll let you jump in because well, I feel I mean, like I'm rambling. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and I've, I've had the chance to really sort of get, um, get smart about your background. And what, what just appeals to me so much, you know, when I started the podcast, Justin, a lot of the conversations I was having with, were with journalists and colleagues that I've known now for some time here inside the Beltway. And as I expand the reach beyond the Beltway, I'm talking to folks like, like yourself who have had a chance to really visit with and talk to artists have a chance to talk to, um, you know, folks that are environmentalists, like the, the expanse of the podcast has been fun, because it helps me better understand sort of some of the other places uh, where stories need to be told. And that's the one thing that I love about the work you do, even beyond the freelance work that you do in the work that you do for Reagan is really about telling a story. And I think that that's something that a lot of journalists really do endeavor to do because 
sometimes these issues can be really complex. Sometimes the issues can be really sort of um, maybe out of reach for your readers. And the way that I feel like in, in what I've read of your coverage and what you've done in your work is you really try to bring it back to uh, the reader and the reader's perspective. Tell me a little bit about, um, I mean, you've had, you know, you had a, you've interviewed a lot of uh, celebs and names that folks would know and recognize. Is there something in the, in the freelance work that you've done in the journalism space that you've done that really stands out as something that you're most proud of? Oh, wow. I mean, I really appreciate you saying that, first of all. Uh, I do think of the reader and I do think of voice. Um, sort of, I think I box myself into a hole as an arts and music writer by not staying in a lane and really cultivating a beat. Mm-hmm. I've, been in, I've been in conversation with a lot of colleagues in, who are still actively in the art space. Um, and they said, you know, it's a privilege that you have as a white male to be able to even get gigs and survive (laughs) without having to stick to hyper pop or to trap music as like a beat or whatever. Um, And so I think about that often, but from a passion standpoint, I really loved the long form pieces I wrote. I wrote one piece about pop existentialism for Vulture. Mm -hmm. It's behind a paywall, but that was a wonderful one because I got to interview a lot of my favorite bands and I whipped it into a tight 2000 word piece or 1500 words. And I, I love long form that, um, like that sort of New Yorker trope or Harper's trope where you think you're reading a story about something and then by the end of it, you're somewhere completely different. You don't know how you got there, but you feel, and then learning to write long form and learning how that was all really a function of of artful structure um, was very valuable to me. So I've written a few pieces like that. I think I wrote a piece about Kirtan music, sort of devotional uh, Indian and Eastern music and how it's been dispersed in the West, uh, for this uh, quarterly mag called no depression Uh which is about like american roots music and like americana music um how do you just just a thought that dawned on me how do you come how do these do these uh, assignments find you or does this work um how does how do they how do they emerge or is it sort of organic really the way that these opportunities present themselves to you i try to be organic because the minute something is forced um I mean, I guess it's a function of what you're looking for. I've certainly had gigs where I was agreeing to write whatever was assigned and there was a pool of writers on the, you know, on the freelancer contributor network who were like giving out a blast and whoever claimed it first. Mm -hmm. I've also had instances like that Kirtan pitch where like, uh, you know, the editor had a theme for an issue and some loose ideas of stories and you went back over emails and workshopped it. It's very, I'm sure you've never had anybody on your podcast tell you that it's all about relationships and that's true. It is a a theme. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll agree with that, but I'll also add that I think what's left out of that, it's all about relationships piece and it's a piece communications are just coming to now as a discipline, but journos might've been there for decades is how much that relationship is contingent on listening And by that, I mean, whether I'm sending out a pitch to someone I hope to speak at a Reagan event or whether I'm hoping to build a relationship with a source or somebody, I actually gauge the cadence of my responses, the brevity of my responses, the type of, not in an authentic way, like the type of language I use, but, you know, maybe there's some people I can get away with an exclamation point Mm -hmm. uh, with in an email and there's some I can't. And I think that dexterity from a place of, with an intention to build relationships, with an intention of also empathy, making people feel seen and like you can get on their wavelength yeah. is a huge part of the relationship. I think piece that's so that true. Do you know what I mean? Yes, so I so do. that's, that's, I know that kind of doesn't answer your question, but, but it depends based on who you vibe with. Well, I <laughs> and mean, ultimately you want to be passionate that... about this work, right? I mean, you don't want to get burned out. 
So, and I think too, to your point, a lot of these uh, experiences and opportunities as they present themselves, even if you're in a traditional newsroom, um, they really do depend on how that connection is made. I mean, if you are thinking ahead, it's really, it's, it's all really part of the pitch and everybody's pitching. Communicators are pitching, journalists are pitching to their editors, freelancers are, freelance folks are pitching to whoever it is they're hoping to get where they want to get their work published and, and et cetera and on and on. But I think you're wise to be thoughtful about how that is put together based on your audience. You know, is it what's appropriate? And that's something that I think that gets sometimes lost in early days as a communicator in that, you know, everything tends to be a little bit of, I'm going to share the same pitch with the same folks. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's what ultimately falls flat in the newsroom. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk to me for a minute because you are not only this journalist that is doing, and I want to talk a little bit for a minute about this other the root community and this group that you do some cool work with on um in terms of creativity and advancing dialogue and discussion tell me a little bit about that yeah so the root community is gosh i want to say 16 acre now farm property up about an hour west of albany Mm -hmm. um started by a man named peter osi a pratt graduate who grew up with my partner hannah in New Canaan, Connecticut, childhood mm-hmm. friends, and sort of went on, they both went on the sort of parallel arts educations. He's like a woodworker and works with his hands on on projects. And yeah. he had this land through his family that was just dirty swamp with bad soil pH. And over the years, he's gotten his childhood friends, Hannah included, and me by proxy. You could say I married into the root to really contribute it toward making it a, a, a vibrant property. It's it's not a commune because everybody there works and has some yeah. sort of professional acumen. Sure. There, there are parties. There is a social component to it. Um, but it's a bunch of tree houses. There's uh, like two or three stages. There's a creek. There's a farm. There's, there's like private showers and stalls. So there's some glamping elements as well. Uh, but it's, it's at its core a place for friendship and for community. The, the B-level story there, the story in the context of the past several years, is that it's a place of progress. Mm-hmm. I think both operating in a very displaced, uh, rural, like probably libertarian politically um, climate where a lot of folks are salt of the earth. There's a lot of Amish uh, folks there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being sort of like a bastion of ideas and creativity in a part of the state that a lot of people forget. So that's one piece yeah. to like it being largely populated by like white privileged people from Connecticut to really taking a look at what inclusivity means as everyone's talents, industries, and perspectives are applied to the space. So mm-hmm. a lot of our programming focuses on inclusivity, not in a tokenizing way, but in a dialogue way. Um, yeah. You see this when you do arts reporting, this idea of like site-specific pieces. You know, MoMA will have a site-specific piece that uses the space. Um, a really good example is Basilica Hudson. Mm-hmm. It's like a reconverted church up in Hudson that um, Melissa Oftemare, who was a bassist in Hole, started with her husband, who's a filmmaker, Tony something. Um, and they have a lot of site-specific performances and art pieces. So the Roots that, the Roots a place for friends to gather, the Roots a place for refuge. I mean, I've been between jobs at points in my career and kind of just went up there to decompress. I've taken interviews up there. 
nice. done you know, telecommuting. So it's 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 a little bit of like that that shifting room from Harry Potter, <laughs> but with well, like a more New York upstate vibe, if that makes any sense. It and, does, uh, and and better music. <laughs> and so right, well, that's the other thing is like the creative side that sort of also helps your you know inspiration and and helps you sort of do the work that you do get you a chance to separate I mean certainly New York being as hard hit as it was during the pandemic um, having a space where you can step away and be safe and be thoughtful and be you know you know getting that creative flow going that you need so much Um, but back to business I mean let's talk for a second about Reagan (laughs) communications because I am just I mean that's obviously how we became uh, friends and and we work together on you know events and other things I've been now to at least one in-person and one online event that you have produced and, and pulled together with the magic of your team. Talk to me a little bit about that work um, and, and what it is that, that you do in that um, spot every day. Of course. Well, it's funny because as you and I were discussing prior to going live, uh, I think we both agree some of this work specifically for Reagan Communications is journalism adjacent, uh, which is not a knock on it. You know, I got into I got into this space as a content producer and a conference producer at PR News in 2018. So I haven't actually been doing this all that long. But what I really enjoy about it is the PR relationship building piece is incredibly valuable because we work with them every day and in, in a reporter capacity and journalist capacity yeah. and tearing down those kind of silos of what's said when you don't reply to something or the psychology of the relationship, the psychology of the communications on the external media relations side, which I know is really what Friday Reporters Jam is. Mm-hmm. That's so valuable. Um, so I think about my shows when I program shows from a narrative standpoint as a writer. I mean, that's my new long form now. Yeah. Um, I think I, I spoke to somebody on an interview uh, a few, by the way, we are hiring. Tell your friends. <laughs> I spoke to someone uh, on an interview this week and they, they said, you know, I said, why do you want to do this work? I said, I said, journalism adjacent. They were coming from a more reporter role uh-huh. and they said, you know, you, every journalist has to negotiate why they get into PR, why they make a career change. And it was so interesting because I think what I love about this role is all the disciplines um, and the skills that I spent time acquiring through grad school, through the discipline and the rigor of being a, a hard news reporter and a more featurey reporter, mm. um, up, apply to various aspects of this business. Um, I also deeply admire Reagan as a brand. I think I think we're smart and we know our stuff, but we speak in a way that people communicate um, in real life, mm-hmm. and we speak in a way that people can resonate with. We're somewhere between you know, the stuffy buttoned up corporate one in the total <laughs> amateur hour, you know, got like a PR philosopher on the corner, you know, and, and, and that, that presence, especially when you're talking to internal communicators who work with employees all day yeah. and have to be a little bit more salt of the earth. Yeah. Um, it's, it's incredibly important. I mean, and then the last thing I'll say is that, you know, I think working here um, in both uh, an editor capacity for Reagan.com and then a programming capacity lets you see how people want to be communicated with. Um, so it makes you a subject matter expert. It makes you want to respond to the community. When the world changed and people couldn't rely, PR especially couldn't rely on a script mm-hmm. or a holding statement all the time anymore, we really saw the value of, I mean, courageous conversations get gets tossed around a lot, but I've also heard conversations over content. Yeah. Being able to do what you and I are doing now, being able to be present with one another, being able to riff, you know, um, these are, they've always been competencies, but, but I think there's something a, a good reporter and a good, um, communicator, uh, share. 
And the one thing I took away from the last conference we were at together in New York was that really, and I mentioned it earlier, you know, communicators are constantly complaining about how their pitches are falling flat or their pitches are not getting heard or their pitches are not, you know, making it through like they used to in the past. But what I think is forgotten, or maybe it's just us being egotistical, (laughs) is that, you know, we're not the only ones that are making the pitch. You know, we're pitching journalists. Journalists are then pitching their editors. Their editors are then pitching the people above them. There's this whole line of, of communication about issues that we're trying to then get uh, communicated out to the broader audience. And what I love about uh, being part of the Reagan family now with the podcast and, and the work that we do together is that, you know, I'm meeting a ton of other really smart communicators, folks that are not only in the um, the PR space, but that are in the digital space that are in, you know, lots of different corners of this little complicated world we live. And mm-hmm. I just love that the network uh, that you're building and the content that you're putting out is just, it's super relevant to me. Uh, it's must read for, for folks like myself who are trying to stay uh, in the know. Um, so I just love that. And I, I love the content you're not only putting together on the event side, but also online as well. Super helpful, super smart, and I'm grateful for that. Well, Lisa, I, I really think the feeling is mutual, I got to say. And you being someone who both works with PR and journalism and is also in the podcast space, you have so much uh, knowledge and so much perspective on a lot of these emerging ways to make conversations more qualitative and make them more substantive that I think are very valuable to our community too, you know, just, uh, just teaching people how to be present with one another oh. and, and, and getting, and getting us there. So, wow. so thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, as we get to the end of our conversation, uh, I'm hopeful that you can, uh, offer me a recommendation for a future episode for a guest that potentially could come on and join me in another conversation. Yeah, give it a go. Um, you know, I was thinking about that in the context of podcasts and podcast journals, and it's something that, I enjoy speaking. Uh, I enjoy this format, this medium, but I think a lot of writer journals and PR people don't understand the podcast landscape from a branding perspective. Met- metrics and, and measurement are still a bit esoteric. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a lot of like unofficial walled gardens. So I would recommend reaching out to some podcast journals. I can connect you with my buddy Jack. He's at the Times. Uh, my buddy Levi, I think he was at a gaming podcast last time, but these are journalists working in a producer capacity. So um, follow up with me next week when I'm back in town and I'm happy to see if I can get them on the horn. No promises. They're all, you know, they're of all course. busy. I'm not telling you nothing. Hey, here, but, uh, I have a long list yeah. of tremendous journalists that have been recommended to me. Some are available and some are not. And, and that's all, that's all part of the game. But the only way to keep this podcast running for the last 18 months uh, with 76 episodes is to just get that word oh, yeah. of mouth. You know that that's the way our work is done. So Justin, I I'm couldn't 76? be. You're 76. Wow. I know. The year our great country was established. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I am so super grateful for your time today. I know we both have to be getting on to our next thing for the day, but Justin, thanks so much. And let's keep in contact. I look forward to it. Thank you, Lisa. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. 
It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.